When it comes to evoking memories of home, there's nothing quite like food to send us back in time. And for many who've created lives in new countries, the foods of home are the first things to share and the last things that are held on to. This season on Countless Journeys, our table is set with a wide variety of stories of food and its place in the lives of our guests. We'll hear from celebrated Vancouver chef Vikram Vij. And I always tell people, I come from one of the largest democracies in the world called India, but I actually live in the best democracy in the world called Canada. As well as from a trio of siblings in Toronto whose Iranian restaurant on Queen Street West has fostered a deep sense of community in a tumultuous time. We made a conscious decision to expand our culture and our cuisine to a community that has never been exposed to it. And I think that that was something that we really, really wanted to do. And we kick things off with Anne Huey. In her book, Chop Suey Nation, The Legion Cafe and Other Stories from Canada's Chinese Restaurants, Anne set off on an 18-day road trip. She was in search of answers to her many questions about the hundreds of Chinese restaurants that are a mainstay in pretty much every city and town across the country. Obsessed is probably not too light of a word for it. I just thought that they were fascinating places and I wanted to know more about them. I'm Tina Pitaway and Anne Huey joins me next on Countless Journeys from the Canadian Museum of Immigration at Pier 21 in Halifax. Countless Journeys. All of our chefs represent either our grandmothers or our mothers or our aunts or the land we come from or the place we grew up in and we put ourselves on the plate. It was my home was everything. People came in and wanted to talk to me. And whenever they came in to buy a loaf of bread, they had to make sure that I knew that they bought a loaf of bread and sat down and wanted to talk to me. It was Portuguese women coming here to build a better life, but also to help build Canada. It, it's, it's scary to make that change. Our, our change was absolute. There was no going back. So it was a, a brave thing for my parents to do. Instead of feeling torn between my two realities, I decided to feel happy wherever I am. Anne Huey's book, Chop Suey Nation, began as a series of articles for the Globe and Mail, where she's been a reporter since 2016. Anne's journey takes her from Victoria to Fogo Island. It's part family memoir and part cultural history. In it, Anne shares not only the stories of the people who own these businesses, but also the stories of the historical forces that, in part, led to these Chinese restaurants' creation, including an infamous piece of legislation commonly referred to as the Chinese Exclusion Act, which became law 100 years ago in 1923. I spoke with Anne from the offices of the Globe and Mail in Toronto. Now, Anne, your journey across Canada, it began uh, as a series of articles uh, for the Globe. What did you want to learn at the outset of that series? So this was 2016, and I had just started a job at the Globe uh, as a food reporter. And so I had this long list of 
subjects, story ideas, possible pitches. And on this list of something like 15 or 20 story ideas, I had one line that just said Chinese restaurants. And that was my very succinct way of kind of condensing this really lifelong obsession with Chinese restaurants. You know, I grew up in Vancouver. I come from a Chinese-Canadian family. My parents immigrated to Canada in the 1970s from South China and Hong Kong. And my understanding of Chinese food as a Chinese person in Vancouver was a very specific thing. You know, we had access to really what we would consider authentic Chinese food. We would go eat in Chinatown. We would have wonton noodles. We would have dim sum, you know, really elaborate banquets. There were so many different ways of eating Chinese food um, in my in my understanding of, of that kind of cuisine. But whenever we would leave Vancouver, whenever we would leave that kind of Chinese bubble, um, that urban bubble, and go to these small towns, I would come across this very different idea of a Chinese restaurant. You know, in a small town, there would always be that one restaurant on the main street. Um, It was always called Fortune something or Garden or Panda (laughs) or Jade something. These restaurants, you know, no matter where we were, they would all kind of look the same. You would have those red uh, placemats, paper placemats. You would have red lanterns hanging from the ceiling. You would have, you know, uh, plastic red banquettes. The food all looked kind of the same. They had all of these very similar menus with, again, very similar menu items with dishes that were all of them entirely new to me as a Chinese person. You know, mugu gai pan, almond chicken, chicken balls. These were, as far as I was concerned, entirely foreign or exotic dishes. So these places were always kind of a bit of a mystery to me. I I couldn't understand how all of these restaurants somehow existed all across, it seemed, the country. I was very curious about the people who ran these restaurants, you know, most of the time, it was pretty obvious that they were the only Chinese people living in those towns, probably the only Chinese people for many, 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 many kilometers out. What were their lives like? You know, so different from, again, what I grew up with and what I understood as a Chinese restaurant. And so I had always just been really obsessed is probably not too light of a word for it. I just thought that right. they were fascinating places and I wanted to know more about them. So you plan a road trip and... Set the stage a little bit. Um, What's the scope of it and who will you be traveling with? We understood that this was a peculiarly Canadian, but also extremely Canadian story, you know. And I knew that, you know, a lot of these really, really small, really tiny remote places were really only accessible by car. The problem, of course, well, for me, is I hate driving. I just do not like it. It fills me with such anxiety. Um... But lucky me, I had a husband who loves to drive. I have a husband who (laughs) loves to drive. He loves to go on road trips. He loves to explore. So um, it was kind of the perfect arrangement. The two of us, 18 days uh, from Victoria, B.C., straight across to Fogo Island, Newfoundland. And why Fogo Island? What was the what 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 led you to kind of make that your endpoint? I chose Fogo specifically as an endpoint because I had come across a photo early on in my research that someone had taken of a woman who runs a Chinese restaurant on Fogo Island, Newfoundland. And what I knew of Fogo Island at the time, and I think what most people know, if they know of Fogo at all, is that it's an extremely, extremely remote 
place in this country. It's literally you go all the way to the east coast of Canada, as far as you can get, and then you take a ferry or an airplane to a tiny little island. You stand on the coast of Fogo Island. You literally feel like you have reached the end of the earth. So this idea of this Chinese woman, who I learned from the caption of the photo, ran this Chinese restaurant 365 days a year in this tiny little town on this very remote island, that really captured my imagination. I thought to myself, I need to know her story. And when you say 365 days a year, you really mean 365 days a year. I really mean 365 days a year. And and labor is certainly a major theme in the book and really in the story of Chinese immigration to mm-hmm. Canada. The very first Chinese men, and they were all men, who came to this country in the mid-19th century came as Chinese laborers. Um, many of them first were involved with the gold rush, but then later, of course, uh, were very important to building the railway and, you know, an important piece of Canada's history. Many of them were recruited um, in large numbers from China as a source of cheap labor in order to build this railway that was going to unite our country. They were given the most dangerous jobs, usually if it meant, you know, tunneling into a mountain using dynamite. Those were the jobs that the Chinese men were expected to perform. They were paid a fraction of what the white laborers were paid at the time and really lured here Um, with the promise of work. The thing is that after uh, many years of Chinese immigration, mass Chinese immigration to Canada, and after the railway was built, uh, white Canadians suddenly looked around them and realized, oh, wow, we have this large number of Chinese, mostly men here now, um, cheap labor, and and that made them nervous. And so we started to see a whole long list of very much discriminatory policies aimed at keeping these Chinese men out of the labor force. You know, the, the local laborers were worried about being replaced by these men, and so they actually put in place laws that would prevent Chinese men from entering most not even white-collar workplaces, but most uh, general workplaces. Um, This was the era when we saw things like the head tax put in place. We actually saw the Chinese Exclusion Act put in place uh, across the country um, in the early 20th century, and that remains the one and only time this country has ever uh, barred an entire group of people from this country based solely on race and ethnicity. And so what that left the remaining Chinese men in Canada was really just what was considered women's work at the time. So they could work in laundromats, they could work in convenience stores, or they could work in restaurants. And this is sort of the genesis for the rise of all these restaurants across the country. Yes. Whether they serve Chinese food or not was was another case entirely, but you started to see these restaurants pop up all across the country. Um, and it's also no coincidence that a lot of those restaurants tend to be concentrated around what used to be railway towns, um, because that's where a lot of these workers were left. Um, and so that, you know, that that idea of work, of labor um, continues even today, you know, this, the main source of work for newcomers to Canada 
uh, newcomers who maybe don't speak the language, newcomers who maybe don't have formal education or training that's recognized here in Canada. Restaurant work is often seen as the easiest way uh, to start a new life here. Um, and so that's a big part of why we still see, you know, so many Chinese restaurants, uh, Chinese restaurants or restaurants in general as the places for new immigrants setting up their lives here. Can you talk a little bit uh, about the demands on families running these restaurants? Uh, be- because there's so much pressure and the margins are so thin. Uh, it- it's really tough, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So restaurant work is grueling. Um, Chinese restaurant owners who I met on this road trip and who I've known uh, in my life are people who often work, you know, 14, 16 hour days, 365 days a year. Many of these Chinese restaurant owners and families who I met actually live in the restaurants that they work in or, or that they own. You know, often there is an apartment above the restaurant where the family lives, or there's an apartment in the back, or even sometimes the basement. Often these restaurants, you know, on their off hours when the restaurant is closed, serve as the family's dining room for their own dinner time, for their own breakfast time. There is no such thing as work-life balance when you live in a Chinese restaurant. You know, so the, the Chinese restaurant kids in particular who I met, you know, they talk about coming home sometimes at lunchtime during school and helping out with the lunch rush. Um, One of the restaurant owners I met in Stony Plain, Alberta, William Choi, he talked about how uh, that that's a quite a rural town, at, at least in the time when he was growing up. He talked about how when he would go to his friends' houses, most of them lived on farms. And so they would play in the barns and climb bales of hay. And when his friends would come over to his house to play, it would be the restaurant. And they would play in the basement where, you know, there would be stacks of uh, big bags of rice, you know, stacked up. And they would climb on top of the, the bags of rice or the, the boxes full of soy sauce. You know, that's just the way that that life was. And I think underpinning that work ethic for a lot of these Chinese restaurant owners in particular was this idea of we understand that we are facing discrimination and that we have all of these challenges that face us. And so we need to work harder in order to not even get ahead, but just to survive. So there was very much this idea that, you know, we need to keep the restaurant open 365 days a year. We need to be open on Christmas when no other restaurants are open in this town, if there are in fact other restaurants in this town. We need to be open that day for those families, who, you know, maybe Jewish families who don't celebrate Christmas or whoever. You know, we need to be open later than everyone. We need to be open earlier than everybody. It was just this idea that we need to outwork everybody because that's one of the few advantages maybe that they felt they had. And also, of course, they, they had to adjust the menu and the food. Like you, as you said at the outset, that so much uh, that's on the menu really wouldn't resonate or ring familiar um, in a traditional Chinese restaurant. Um, can you talk a little bit about the Canadianization of, of many of these dishes and, and 
there's a lot of creativity as well that goes into kind of making it palatable to palates that aren't at all um, accustomed to anything kind of out of the ordinary. So in my book, I differentiate between, quote, authentic Chinese food, and authentic is a loaded term, but by that I mean the kind of food that I grew up with or the kind of food that you might find if you actually went to China. Um, and this other kind of Chinese food that I describe as chop suey Chinese. Um, and by chop suey Chinese food, I am referring to this whole repertoire of quote, Chinese food that you're not going to find in China, but you'll find in many Chinese restaurants in North America and really all around the world. This is food that's sold as Chinese and yet wouldn't actually originate from Asia or certainly not China. Uh, many of these dishes were created right here in Canada. Many of them were also created in in San Francisco in, in the U.S. Uh, around the time of early Chinese immigration as well. You know, these were dishes that were created by those first Chinese restaurant owners who, as I was talking about before, you know, they came as laborers. They came as railway workers. They weren't necessarily cooks. They weren't necessarily restaurant workers. They didn't even necessarily know how to cook when they first started a restaurant. And so they had to learn very quickly how to cook food that people in Canada would want to eat. And of course, most of the people coming into the restaurants at the time would not have been Chinese people. So they had to consider the palates of the locals. They also had to consider what ingredients and avail uh, what ingredients were available to them at the time. You know, even things like soy sauce in the early 20th century may not have been widely available in Canada, certainly not the array of Chinese vegetables that you could easily find, you know, in a city like Vancouver, Toronto now would not have been available at the time. Even things like egg noodles, you know, not necessarily easy to find in that period. And so there was a lot of improvisation happening. There was a lot of making things up on the fly, but with ingredients that they had available to them and that wouldn't be too exotic or too weird or scary or off-putting to, you know, these, these, these unfamiliar palates to these locals. And so that's when we started to see dishes like chicken balls that were deep fried uh, and served with this bright red sauce. You know, we saw a lot of ketchup being added to dishes. We saw a lot of deep frying happening because, you know, French fries were very popular. And what if we made these beef strips taste something like French fries? It was this idea of somewhat foreign, but not too foreign, you know, somewhat exotic, not too exotic, it, a melding of you know, new and old, there was uh, a, a huge emphasis on things like texture and flavor, you know, uh, something crunchy, something crispy, something sweet, something sour. Uh, it was just a lot of improvisation. And out of that came some of these dishes that I think are now, you know, some of the most beloved dishes to to a lot of people who grew up eating them. In terms of that dexterity, I suppose, of appealing to a local clientele, you also wrote about the use of cabbage in Newfoundland in a specific dish. What was what was that? Mm -hmm. So when I arrived in 
a town called Deer Lake, Newfoundland. We went to a restaurant called the Canton Restaurant um, to have lunch and to interview the owner there, a man named Richard Huang. And as soon as I approached the restaurant door, I noticed a sign that had been printed on a piece of computer paper. And it said, our chow mein is made with cabbage. (laughs) And I thought, what? (laughs) Because chow mein, literally chow mein in Cantonese, it means fried noodles. And so I was very curious about this. And when I spoke with Richard, the owner there, he explained to me that in Newfoundland, the default way of preparing chow mein is not with noodles, but with thin strips of green cabbage. And that is because in the early days of Chinese restaurants, in Newfoundland in particular, uh, Chinese ingredients would have been very, very, very difficult to come by. And that would have remained the case in Newfoundland for far longer than most other parts of this country, of course, because Newfoundland um, is, is an island. And so even until relatively recently, it was very difficult to get egg noodles there. So what the early Chinese restaurant owners there there did was something very clever. They just, you know, sliced very, very, very thin strips of green cabbage so that it looked something like noodles um, and treated that as their egg noodles or treated that as their noodles. And so the default, again, at most restaurants in Newfoundland, when you order chow mein, is going to be this plate of sautéed green cabbage but I just think it's such a cool example of, again, the, the adaptability of this cuisine, the ingenuity of these restaurant owners, um, and this very cool origin story of, of cuisine, of this cuisine. Did you order any? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and what was it like? <laughs> it was actually quite delicious. And, you know people react to that with some skepticism. But you have to remember that this was towards the very end of my 18-day road trip, eating almost nothing but chop suey Chinese food. My body... um, my body was craving vegetables like every 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 cell of my body was screaming for something green and so here was this nice man giving me a, a dish of just sautéed green vegetables it was delicious um I, I actually like cabbage i know not everybody does but i really like cabbage i and the like depth and umami of i'm saying that cringing because i I would cringe if I heard somebody say that, but <laughs> the, the umami that the, the cabbage lends to that the dish was was actually quite delicious. I mean, the texture was completely different. And so if what you really want is chow mein, um, you're probably not going to be satisfied with it. But it it is a dish alone. It was very delicious. You also uh, uh, mentioned the first Chinese food buffet uh, uh, restaurateur in Canada. Who was that? That was a man named Bill Wong. Uh, from Montreal, Quebec. He is actually the father, was the father of uh, former Globe journalist Jan Wong. Um, But he was just a very clever and industrious uh, business owner, restaurant owner at the time. And he saw that uh, smorgasbord restaurants 
uh, were just starting to become very popular in different parts of the continent. You know, that was an idea that was imported from Europe and this idea of having, you know, lots of different kinds of food for people to access and try at once. Um, this was, you know, the period of multiculturalism. Canada was just opening itself up to outsiders, to new ideas, to foreign tastes, to uh, exotic foods. And so while people were curious, they probably didn't have a ton of knowledge about these kinds of cuisines. And so the smorgasbord, the the buffet, was kind of a perfect way for uh, introducing, you know, new Chinese restaurant lovers <laughs> to this cuisine. You know, they could pay a set price and try many, many different kinds of food at a time. Um, it also made things a lot easier for the Chinese restaurant owners as well. You know, they knew exactly what they had to cook any given day. They knew what ingredients they would need to have on hand. They could kind of do everything in big batches. And it really lightened the workload for a lot of these restaurant owners where, you know, suddenly they didn't have to be spending 16 hours at the restaurant any anymore. That's fascinating. Thank you. I think so. So within this road trip uh, and the photo uh, that you saw of this woman on Fogo Island, uh, bring me into your journey to the Quang Tong restaurant. The last day of our trip, we arrive in Fogo Island, Newfoundland. We drive up to the Quang Tong restaurant. I'm feeling nervous because I had not called ahead. Um, I wanted to keep our visit fairly spontaneous. And so as we were pulling up to the restaurant, I realized all of the things that could go wrong, including, of course, that this restaurant that I had pinned uh, so many of my hopes on and, and really designed this whole road trip around, that it might actually be closed. Right. Um, so I open the door. Uh, luckily, the restaurant is open and quickly find myself face to face with this woman, Ms. Huang. Uh, in between serving other customers and serving us, uh, she slowly started to tell me bits and pieces of her story. Ms. Huang told me that she had come to Canada from uh, Guangdong, southern China. Uh, she had come here with her husband and young daughter at the time, two young daughters. They came to Canada after one of their daughters had become very sick and they realized that, you know, the kind of village hospital that they were able to find for their daughter in China was just not the kind of life that they wanted to be able to offer to their children. And so uh, her husband had a cousin, I believe, who was already in in Newfoundland, uh, already running a Chinese restaurant on Fogo. And so uh, they decided to go there. Um, over the many, many years, Ms. Huang and her husband eventually took over the restaurant on Fogo. Um, her husband found another Chinese restaurant in a town on mainland Newfoundland, Twilingate, um, to run and they realized two incomes would mean a better life for their kids and so they decided to live separately in different towns. Eventually Ms. Huang's children had grown up. They had gone to university and moved away and now here she was in Fogo alone running this restaurant 365 days a year living in this apartment behind the restaurant. She spoke very little English. She had made 
a few friends on the island, but for the most part spent most of her time alone, no cell phone, no car, um, and that was her life. And on the face of it, it, you know, it, it was still astounding to me, the, these facts that she was relaying to me in the same way that that photo had astounded me. You know, if anything, it just seemed even more lonely, even more isolated than I could have possibly imagined. Um, but then she took me for a tour into her apartment in the back of the restaurant and she showed me her walls where she had photographs of her kids, you know, displayed. She had her daughter's university graduation photo prominently displayed. She showed me photos of her other daughter who was living in Toronto, um, you know, who, who had a master's degree. And, you know, all, all of her kids graduated university, good jobs, better lives. And in her telling of this, she was just so obviously filled with pride and joy. And that moment, you know, I, I, I heard over and over and over on the road trip, we did it for our children. We did it so they could have better lives. And they could have said that to me over and over and over again. And they did say that to me over and over and over again. But in that moment with Ms. Huang in her apartment, her showing me those photos, that joy, that pride in her face, that really drove it home for me. And uh, upon your return to Toronto, you actually connected with her daughter, who was actually the sick baby uh, that whom they nearly lost uh, when they were living in China. That uh, and that experience uh, ultimately um, propelled them to to move to Canada and to create that better life. Can you talk to me about what you two talked about? So in the months after my road trip for the globe, I received a lot of response from people uh, who had read the story about the road trip in the globe and wanting to share with me their stories. And, and I really realized if I hadn't already realized, you know, this is something big. This is something that people feel connected to. And around that same time, I was spending a lot of time back home with my own parents uh, in Vancouver. My dad was sick. He had recently been diagnosed with um, with cancer. And I knew that there was very little time left. And so I really wanted to spend a lot of that time learning his stories, learning more about, you know, the same things that I had asked all of these restaurant owners across the country, you know, what brought you here? Um, what was your life like before you came to Canada? What was it like when you first came here? Now, what I knew of my of my dad going into those conversations was that he had run restaurants all my life as well. But the difference had been that he had run these what I considered Western restaurants. Um, he ran these like almost kind of Western diner style restaurants. And then for most of my childhood, he ran a catering company where he would serve, you know, 100 plus people buffets, cold cut platters, giant lasagnas, um, chicken a la king, that kind of thing. But in these conversations now with my dad, he started referencing this one restaurant in particular that he and my mom had run before I was born, a restaurant called the Legion Cafe. And it was in these conversations that I finally realized that the Legion had actually been a Chinese restaurant. And I hadn't 
known this. I had never known that my parents had run a Chinese restaurant. I hadn't known in this whole time that I had been doing this road trip and asking all these other families about their lives and about their Chinese restaurants that my own parents had, in fact, run a Chinese restaurant. Um, And that just made it very clear to me in that moment that I was very ignorant to have not thought to have asked these questions sooner. Um, You know, woven in with that desire to know these stories, um, I understood very clearly that I, as a second generation restaurant kid, uh, as the, the, the benefactor of this immigrant experience, as the person whose parents had done this very hard thing of moving to a new country and starting a new life and making all of these sacrifices for their children, their children being me, I wanted to know where that left me and what my duty was to my parents, what my responsibility was, and really what do I do with all of this privilege that I've been given? And obviously, my dad being sick was just, again, this very real kind of um, ticking clock in the background. And so that was really what I wanted to talk to to Stacy about, Ms. Huang's daughter in Toronto. Um, so that's what we talked about. We talked about whether we felt the same sense of guilt when, you know, we would see our parents saving up every single penny that they had you know, my mom, my dad, just like her mom, her dad never bought new things for themselves. Her mom, just like my mom, was still wearing hand-me-downs from us, from our teenage years. You know, I go back to Vancouver now and I see my mom wearing things that I used to wear in high school. Um, so that very specific, I think, sense of guilt that very specific searching for what do we do with this? Who do we pass it on to? What do we owe them and what do we owe ourselves? And in your conversation with Stacy, she recounts to you a conversation that she had with her own dad. Um, um, And he asks her a question. Do you remember what that question was? She talked about how her dad had called her recently and in their usual calls in their usual conversations the one of the only things her you know all of the questions her dad would ask her generally were very uh, practical things like have you eaten yet um how is your work going uh do you have enough money to survive those kinds of very practical um logistical almost questions But more recently, she said her dad had called her and he had asked her the question, are you happy? And she found that very moving um, because I think that for many of us, again, second generation immigrants, that idea of happiness is really a privilege that our generation gets to have because the previous generation, our parents, the ones who first arrived here, their lives have been almost entirely consumed with just survival. Just the idea of being able to put food on the table, 
being able to raise their children and hopefully one day being able to have them ask the question, are you happy? So that was something that really struck her. That was something that she and I talked about. That's something that I think she and I both think about a lot in in uh, approaching our parents, even now, my mom, even now, um, is this idea of happiness. I don't know that we're entirely there yet. My mom is still wearing my hand-me-downs. But <laughs> even the idea of introducing it, I think, is 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 a really nice thing. Absolutely. And do we know where Mrs. Huang is now? Ms. Huang's plan, the last time I actually talked to her, was that she was going to retire somewhere in the suburbs of Toronto. Okay. She had bought a house with her husband, and they were planning on moving out here together once they felt ready to retire. The idea that they would move uh, to the to the 905, to the suburbs of Toronto, was because, again, Stacy lives here, and so they wanted to be close to at least one of their daughters. The problem, the last I spoke with Stacy was that uh, timeline for when they were ready to retire seemed to keep kind of changing. So I don't know, as of right now, whether that's happened. It seemed like she had kept putting it off. Your book uh, came out in pre-pandemic days, uh, and I'm wondering uh, how some of these restaurants fared throughout that ordeal. Yes. Since then, we have seen a wave of ugliness towards uh, Asian-looking and uh, Asian people across this country and, and around the world. And the reaction from people and policymakers often to these, you know, anti-Asian attacks have been, oh, I can't believe this, you know, how horrible, this is not who we are. But what I would say to that is, you know, the stories that my book tell is that none of this is new. You know, the the ugliness that many of these first Chinese men uh, faced when coming to Canada, many of these discriminatory policies that I described about wanting to keep Chinese men out of the workforce, about wanting to keep uh, Chinese men uh, away from living near, you know, white populations because there were fears that these men were dirty, that they carried disease. Uh, there were all kinds of rumors that, you know, Chinese men ate rats or other strange things that they would cook in the backs of their restaurants. There was this real fear and distrust of Chinese people. Um, it, this is a this is a, a, a period that's sometimes referred to as the Yellow Peril. But that what there's a very real and ugly part of Canada's history. And you can see echoes of that um, later in history as well, you know, in the period of the 1990s in Vancouver, when all of a sudden we saw large waves of Chinese immigration, uh, many of them coming from Hong Kong, wanting to flee Hong Kong ahead of the Chinese handover. We saw a lot of rhetoric, again, anti-Asian rhetoric. We don't want, you know, these Chinese people who are buying up these these homes, turning, you know, raising our, 
our heritage homes, uh, destroying our landscapes, building these these monster homes. In that debate, again, we saw a lot of the same kind of uh, rhetoric. And then, you know, fast forward to 2020, fears of Chinese restaurants, you know, rumors about Chinese people bringing this disease at about restaurant Chinese restaurants being unclean, unsafe to eat in. You know, it's so many echoes of the same thing. And so I would just say that I think history uh, has a lot of lessons in it. And so this is why it's important for us to know this history. Absolutely. Chop Suey Nation, The Legion Cafe, and Other Stories from Canada's Chinese Restaurants is the name of the book. And it's a, it's a beautiful story and it's obvious. Uh, it, it, it meant so much to you to learn about uh, and it brings so much to those of us who read it. It's, it's a wonderful book. Thank you. If you'd like to hear more stories like this and help new listeners discover this podcast, make sure to rate Countless Journeys on your favorite podcast app or leave us a review. Countless Journeys comes to you from the Canadian Museum of Immigration at Pier 21, located at the Halifax Seaport. I'm Tina Pitaway. Bye for now. <laughs>